Motopod, proudly supported by Roadskin, a UK label specialising in protective outwear for motorcyclists. Modern biker clothing that you can wear all day long and engineered to save your skin. For the road, for life. Visit roadskin.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 740. I'm your host, Jim McDowell. With me, as always, Richard Jowett from the UK. Richard, late night for you. Late night for me, bit of a stinking cold, having been in very hot Paris last week, and somehow I've managed to come back with sniffles, but never mind, we've got some racing to talk about. That's right, I always get us motivated. But first of all, we want to thank everybody who donates to the show, and everybody through PayPal, Kevin Kovic, Nick Saban, Alan Fleming, and everybody at Patreon, Gary Shavit, Steve, Monk, Paul Lang, Hudson, Kai Cooper, Darren Andrews, Rob, Fritas, Kyle Clark, Jacob Rohrer, and Jeremy Burnage. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. For those of you who don't subscribe to the show, if you can, please do. If you can't, go over to where you get your favorite, where you get this podcast, leave us a review. Um, that will put us back to the top of the list and maybe more people can find us. And with that out of the way, oh, I did forget Dennis Kindig. Sorry, Dennis. Don't forget Dennis. Don't forget, forget Dennis. He's I there. Job, Dennis. I apologize. You're there. You're always there. And without that, I guess we'll go to some listener feedback that's come in, Rick. So I'll let you roll with that. Okay, do we want to do the long one or the short one first? Let's do the short one first. Okay, so this is just a quick, what's the way to put this? Well, an alternative opinion, which came in from listener Teaser John on X or Twitter, depending on how comfortable you are with that recent change. So, yeah, John basically saying, gents, re-episode 740. In fact, I think this might be episode 741, Jim. But Are we um, 741? Yeah, so... Re740, sorry, he can't agree with us in the sense that he thinks that Dennis Onchu definitely did deserve the penalty 100% for that clash with uh, Munoz in the last corner. Uh, John goes on to say, yeah, of course, Rubin is racing, as we always like to say, but he felt that that was a, an avoidable collision that Onchu kind of was steaming in there, might have anticipated and known what was going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, all opinions are valid and welcome on this show. So, I mean, we called it one way, Jim. I think we probably haven't massively changed our mind. But, yeah, John sees it a completely different way. And that's fair enough about with the feedback. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's racing. I think that's what everybody wants is a different opinion of something. And, you know, everybody has the right to see it their way. I think, like you said, you and I don't think are going to change our opinion on it. But, you know, it's free to, free to John to have that. And uh, that's what makes racing great is everybody sees it differently. Yeah, I mean, Onchu, just let's remember, did go steaming through that corner. So having seen a bit of a melee in front of him, yes, I suppose there is a completely fair argument, as John is saying, that he could very well have expected that one of those bites would come back onto the line and uh, a touch would ensue. But I suppose in the heat of the moment, last lap, last corner, everybody's out for themselves, aren't they? So that's the sort of thing that's going to happen from time to time. Anyway, that was uh, that was TZ John. So thanks for that. And then I think Gary gave us some feedback based on TV. So how do we want to break that one down? Ooh, how long have we got? Because uh, Gary decided, <laughs> to, as, as he likes to do, to sort of really sock it out a little bit. So he says, you specifically asked for listeners' comments. Apologies for ranting and so on and so on. So this was to do with the discussion we had about the aftermath of the Banyaya crash and the coverage, which created quite a lot of talk online, particularly on social media, of course, about whether it was overstepping the mark in terms of being a bit too voyeuristic, uh, particularly with regards to 
team members and Banyar's girlfriend and sister in particular who had the cameras sort of in their face a bit when they were waiting around at the medical centre to see how he was. I haven't sort of read this and memorised it. I think basically what Gary is saying that in the bad old days, stuff was televised and it was very much sensationalised. He refers at, at some length to the crash that happened in the 1967 Monaco Grand Prix, which I think was Lorenzo Bandini, if memory serves me correctly, where he crashed on the hay bales, the car caught on fire. I mean, obviously there was fuel everywhere in those days and it was just a disaster. There was a helicopter hovering above shooting footage, which was fanning the flames and so on. So I don't know, Jim, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, whether you've got a different view on it, having thought on it for a week or so. You know, having, having had a time to think about it and reflect, lots of things have been sensationalized on TV in motorsport. I'm not old enough to remember that crash in 67 at Monaco. However, I am old enough and remember watching when Senna was tragically killed at Imola in 94. And that got replayed a lot, especially, you know, the impact, the crash, all that. It it does seem to be that centralized. I think it was only a couple of years prior that Gerhard Berger went off, I think, at the same corner in a Ferrari. But the angle was the angle of incidents to the wall was different. And Berger's car simply, you know, was in flames. If you want to go even, has it gotten worse? I think that's what Gary's saying is it's gotten worse. And he's probably right because if you want to think back to, oh gosh, I don't know when this was. It, it was, I want to say three years ago at the Formula One race in not Abu Dhabi. It wasn't, is it Qatar? It wasn't Qatar. Oh, the Grosjean um, crash. That was the Grosjean crash. Right? Bahrain, I think, wasn't it? Yes, it was Bahrain. Grosjean's car goes into the barriers. It is flaming and the cameras never cut from that. And you watch Romain come out of the flames, which is horrifying to say the least. So have, having thought about what Gary said, I think Gary has a couple other instances of this too. I think it, I'm now in, in the camp of, yeah, that's a bit much. I think it was, hey, here's a replay. Oh, crap. Ben Yaya has been hit in the legs. And that's that. We're done with this now. And it shouldn't be shown again. I mean, I, I don't think we can we can fault anyone for what happens on live TV. That's kind of what happened with Simicelli. That was just caught live and it went out. There was, yeah. you know, no way to pause that or to cut to a different camera angle or anything of that nature. Now, with those things, you're never going to stop that. But I do think they went overboard with, you know, thinking about it, going back. I think they went overboard with cameras and faces of Benyaya's girlfriend, his sister, the team, you know, everybody else. But I hate to say it, but they have a saying in the news, if it bleeds, it leads. So it's just a way to market themselves. And it shouldn't be, but it is, right? The other side of the coin is, is that good grief, that's why people went to the Roman Coliseum to watch things like that, right? Mm. It's sort of somehow there is a macabre sense of they're there for the bad, right? I think that shows up a lot in racing in, here in America in NASCAR, which is a stock car series that runs on very high-speed oval tracks that they run around in a pack, and they're always referring to, quote, the big one. Hey, we're waiting for the big one. And it seems as though that's what many people are waiting for is this big, huge crash that inevitably seems to happen no matter what people do to change the rules to keep the cars apart. They come back together again. But again, that's just live TV and something's, you know, car slipping over. That's just what happens. But yeah, I do think it's gone too far. Before we just go into a couple of the other bullet points from Gary's rather long email, but yeah, great email as always. 
I mean, my view, having thought about this a bit more, Jim, is that I think Dorna have, or whoever's responsible for the coverage, but let's say Dorna as a, a general commercial holder of the rights and the and the TV access and all the rest of it, I think they have actually kind of upped their game and improved things in the sense that, yeah, you can't stop what happens live because it's live and it happens in two or three seconds or less in most cases. So there's no way to cut away when something's happening very quickly like that. I think what was a, a bit egregious about what happened on Sunday was that it was quite obvious that Banyai wasn't severely injured as in critically injured you know had Binder hit him in the torso or the neck or head then I don't think we would have seen another shot of anything but the fact that he was kind of okay although he might well have had a badly broken leg or two broken legs for all people knew I think that encouraged them to sort of replay the crash much quicker than they would otherwise do in the modern era. I don't know if you agree with that. And then obviously just to add insult to injury, they then did all the sort of the, the ambulance chasing and stuff, which did create a lot of backlash. And I think from my point of view, I think in this day and age, rightly so. I think you're right. I do think that that, that weighs in it somewhere. I don't know which way it does, but it, it it's a part of it too. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I was trying to think back to like when Simicelli's crash, it happened live. You saw it. You knew it wasn't good, but I don't remember them replaying it. No, I'm sure they didn't. So I don't think they did. You know, I think the more sickening thing was they decided to finish the, no, they did. They can't, I can't remember now. They canceled the race, didn't they? Or did they continue? I can't remember. <laughs> it's too too many races. No, I think I, I think they canceled the race. I think yeah. they did cancel the race. And yeah, they thought about it, but then they they did cancel the race, which is obviously the right thing to do. So the other point, Jim, that a number of people, not not Gary in this particular instance, I don't think, but um, another people online certainly did mention was that because it is a very quick restart procedure and the riders have to get back quickly to the pits if they've got damaged bikes. So we saw the likes of Zarco and Bezeki and so on rushing to get their stricken bikes up and back to the pits, which happily for them that they did. But then they were kind of sat for five or ten minutes in the pits just whilst things were getting sorted out. And the Banyai incident was being kind of inverted commas cleaned up and he was being taken to the medical center and of course all of this stuff has been beamed into the garages as well so the riders have been subjected to these multiple replays of a very serious incident and not to mention brad binder who obviously was the unfortunate person that just could not avoid banyar in that incident so there is again and this was obviously a theme that came up in the formula one crash in bahrain with grosjean that you referenced a little while ago most of the formula one drivers were very unhappy about the degree to which that crash was replayed whilst they were in the pits waiting to find out what had happened and obviously getting themselves back in the mental space to restart the race so there are many facets to this issue uh, I, I guess we shouldn't go on about it too much but gary does indeed mention has everybody forgotten about the Marco Simoncelli incident? Because nobody seems to mention it. I mean, it was quite some years ago, but we've just been at the Marco Simoncelli Mazzana racetrack, haven't we? But what else does he say? Gary pulls me up about my contention that Binder sort of jinked and in doing so kind of avoided a worse collision. Gary thinks I'm possibly being a bit fanciful in that thought, given that Banyai was kind of spinning or turning in the on the tarmac at the time so yeah i take that point i mean just luckily for everybody concerned that he didn't hit him in the torso or higher up and just finally because as i say this is a long email i wasn't questioning the fact that bastianini had got a penalty because in the modern context you're always going to get a penalty for causing a what a five or six bike crash like that i was simply referring to the fact i think if my memory serves me correctly that nakagami went piling in in that first corner at the same race last year if you remember he kind of had that thing where his visor flipped up and his 
sort of face virtually planted into the rear tyre of somebody, I can't remember who it was now, and several bikes went down, Alex Rins being amongst them, and he broke his wrist, and, and Nakagami didn't get a penalty for that incident last year, so just a bit of inconsistency there again. And was it Gary that was just telling us to shut up about going on about inconsistent penalties? Yes. Fair enough. I, I think we probably just do need to, or I personally, or specifically do need to stop getting quite so aggravated about it because this is just the way that things are. I mean, there was an absolute corker in the World Superbikes this weekend in terms of a penalty or a non-penalty, but uh, we might or might not get to that a little bit later on, just briefly. So yeah, long email from Gary and a great email as always. And uh, yeah, keep them coming. All right, let's move on to the news that has surfaced since the weekend. It's the weekend started out with sad news on Saturday morning, learning that Mike Trimby, who is known as the man who started the URTA, uh, International Ra- International uh, Teams Racing Association, he passed away, I don't know exactly, but it seemed like it was like late Friday night, very early Saturday morning. It was a shock to everyone that he did pass away, which is sad. So our condolences to his friends, family, everyone in the paddock who knew Mike. You know, Mike did a lot for the riders. He was sort of the guy back in the 70s that sort of was appointed to the head of the riders as, you know, Roberts and Spencer. And some of those guys were all, you know, battling for safer, safer things. And, you know, and they, there's a great article in Motorsports Magazine about Mike and how they transformed the sport. And I think you should read it because he did a lot to make MotoGP what we see it as today. So it's going to be, uh, one of those things where there's going to be that transition of like, well, who's going to be this person? And we'll see how that pans out. Anything you want to add for Mike there, Rich? Uh, well, uh, only to share your message of condolence to everybody concerned. I mean, he was a towering figure in metaphorically and, you know, literally uh, in the paddock. I think he was a bike racer originally and then he kind of got more into the kind of the behind the scenes stuff. And as you say, he was kind of like a, almost like a cross between a relevant person to mention, I suppose, in this context, Charlie Whiting and say a Jackie Stewart, mm-hmm. you know, he's kind of that technical and safety person and the whole Erta organization was very much, I think, set up to give the riders and the teams a lot more power in terms of rules. And I, would imagine definitely in terms of safety bearing in mind this would have been what in the late 60s through the 70s and into the 80s yeah i hope i'm not making him older than he was but certainly certainly into the you know late 70s and 80s let's say that for sure a massive figure in the sport and one whose absence and loss will be felt for a long time to come for sure uh, let's look at the rider silly season we know another spot in moto gp has been claimed luca marini will stay at mooney vr46 i think that was <laughs> i don't think anybody would thought that was not going to be not a big shock yeah (laughs) not a shock yeah uh moving to moto two we learned this week that sean dylan kelly was back for the mazana round but he was racing for forward racing now i didn't find out anything about whether he would be at forward next year or not so that remains to be seen if sdk stays in the moto gp paddock i hope he does but i'm not certain that that's going to happen second piece of moto two news diego morera will move from moto three to moto two and he were essentially replaces Joe Roberts at the Italtrans team. So Diego Marrera goes up, and since there's now a space open at his old Moto3 ride, the Ortola will now go over from his team to the MT Helmets team replacing Marrera. So that's there. Now, I think some news just broke in Moto2, Rich, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you tell us that one? Uh, well, sort of top of the tree on the MotoGP.com website was the news confirmed, I would imagine, uh, certainly this afternoon, this evening, that 
Celestino Vietti and Dennis Onchu are now confirmed to be the riders in the IO Moto2 team next year. Now, that's significant in the sense that Onchu comes up for Moto3, as we've been saying and hoping that he would do. Significant that Vietti comes across. You know, he's the still the bit of the rough diamond, isn't he? Will Aki IO work that magic with him? Probably. Equally as significant, though, is that Pedro Acosta will not be in that team next year. So, I mean, again, that's not a huge shock. It's just that we don't know where he's going to be yet. So this is, uh, we, we had a few exchanges on WhatsApp over the weekend, Jim, on this one. So I guess we've yeah. got a few ideas on how this might shake out. Assuming it is now correct that despite their massive efforts to make it happen, let's say KTM do not get another two bikes on the grid. So somebody has to go. Correct. We were sharing some ideas on how that might shake out. No, do we want to share those ideas? You know, it's a limited field now, isn't it? So, yeah, you go right. first. So one of the things we speculated was, where's Jack Miller going? Because his performance this year has been on a slow slope down. So if you take Jack out, you could slit Acosta into that factory KTM seat, put him right next to Bender, who, if you look at how Bender rides, you look at how Acosta's riding that Moto2 bike, their styles are close to each other. So that may be a better bit don't know but if you do do you really get rid of jack well you you could if you politely tell pole who is still recovering from very serious crash right and he says that he doesn't have the reflex you know he's not built back up that muscle memory of reflex for what he's riding so if that happens to him do you put paul into a testing role alongside pedrosa maybe and slide miller back there or do you just remove pull and move him to a testing spot and slide a cost into the gas gas team. Take your pick. Yeah. I think it's fair to say one of those two guys will be replaced by Pedro Acosta. Figure it out for yourself at that point. It's sad, but it's what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, five people in four spots doesn't work. So somebody's got to give. I don't know. I mean, my speculation, I think, was that possibly this is time maybe for Paul Spargro just to step back a bit, maybe do some wild cards. Trouble is, he does crash quite a bit and he tends to crash quite big. And so he has been injured quite a lot through his MotoGP career. I mean, fair play to the guy. I mean, he was Moto2 champion few years back so he's got real class and pedigree there's no two ways about that but he's never really quite got as far in moto gp nearly won a couple of races and he but if we think back but each year that goes by i think it would be unfair as i've said numerous times to cut augusto fernandez because you know lowish key year but he's a rookie moto two world champion and ktm don't really want to be seen to be continually sacking moto two world champions that they have brought up through the ranks who only get a year and then they're cut. I just don't think that's a good look for them at all or, or their kind of rider programme. Because who knows? I mean, maybe it takes Pedro Acosta a year or two to get comfortable on a MotoGP bike. It certainly took him three quarters of a season, if not all of last year, with a leg break in there to really start to perform as a Moto2 rider, having dominated a Moto3 the year before. So, you know, people need a bit of time. And both Jack and Pole have, have had a lot of time in MotoGP. Now, Jack has been a lot more successful in terms of race wins. So for me, the choice would Whilst it's not obvious, I think, yeah. The question, as you said, Jim, is would they take the risk of slotting Pedro into the full works team next to Binder? Or would they want to just give him a slightly softer landing? Although wherever he goes, there's going to be a massive spotlight on him just because of the nature of the sort of character and talent that he is. So that's a big conundrum for them. And 
surprisingly, we still don't know the answer to it. I mean, I would imagine they they have been frantically trying to figure out some way of getting these extra bikes on the grid. Some thoughts around Mark Marquez still haven't gone away with regards to that little scenario as well. Would Marquez hold enough sway to twist Dorna's arm? You know, that'll walk, don't know. But as you said, I think to me last night on WhatsApp, Jim, you know, they've kind of been in a stranglehold of a personality that effectively rules the sport before and quite recently. So they probably don't want to put themselves in that position again. But we are talking about Mark Marquez, Spaniard, multiple world champion. I mean, if he was to walk, it would be a big loss to the sport this soon after Rossi disappearing. But you've got Acosta coming in as the next kind of chosen one. So, hmm, interesting. It is. It's going to be very interesting because I think you have to throw Fabio Quattararo into the mix somewhere too. I think Quattararo is vying for a way out of Yamaha. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the testing in, at the end of the show, guys. So we'll, we can make more comments there. But you're, you're potentially talking about two established stars of the sport needing to be on better equipment that aren't on very good equipment right now and a new up-and-coming superstar who's going to go on to some good equipment. So... Yeah, it's a little mixed up right now in mm. how this plays out and who holds all the cards and who's bluffing and who's not and who's holding aces high in a full house. I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting. I just want to see how it all pans out. Well, just before we move off the news, that kind of segues, I suppose, into the other news item that came out yesterday, but is pretty high up the list on the Dorna site, which is that Marquez... Mark Marquez, as we were just talking about, says he has plans A, B and C to consider and that he will make a decision around India, which is, well, just under a fortnight from now, the next round, and will announce what he's going to be doing at the Mategi round in Japan. Now, that has potentially some significance given where his current employers are based. So it's a bit of a kind of, what's the word, circus show at the minute, a lot of this. I mean, those weird tweets came out, didn't they, on Friday, which I think was just him kind of putting himself or keeping himself in the shop window and relevant from a social media point of view and just sort of fanning the flames and keeping the spotlight on himself a bit because there are other people that have a, a brighter light on them at the moment and the likes of Mark Marquez have a pretty large ego and don't like <laughs> losing the limelight so I thought it was a bit naughty what he did really and a bit a bit cynical if I'm honest yeah if he decides to walk from Honda announcing it at Motegi is a serious smack in the face yeah if he had in his contract anywhere that he gets the motorcycles he's won world titles on, he's not getting those bikes. No, deal oh, off. <laughs> deal <laughs> off. Deal's gone like uh, Valentino Rossi style there. So you can kiss that goodbye. The other thing is that it could be extremely anticlimactic that like, hey, I'm finishing out my year on uh, my contract. We're going to try to make the bike as good as we can, but I'm going to pursue other avenues. It could be that too. No one knows what's going to happen. Again, he keeps himself relevant and we keep speculating and we're not going to get the answer until he decides to tell us the answer. I mean, plan A might be, well, let's not take plan A, but one option is he stays put because obviously for him to leave a year early is going to cost him money because he's got a contract and a, a big paying one at that. There's no room at the inn at Yamaha and debatably he wouldn't want to go there anyway. There's no room at the inn, as far as I can see, at Aprilia, certainly not for next year. KTM, well, unless they could get another two bikes on the grid, that's a closed door as well because you know they're not going to take Marquez over Acosta let's be honest um so that really only leaves the Ducati the sort of the Grassini ride doesn't it well Grassini and Pramac have a ride available because Zarco is left and we don't know who is going to slot into Pramac 
well, I think we have to assume at this point that it's Frankie Morbidelli, but the Grassini ride, yeah, okay, there's some symmetry there in the sense that it would be, you know, Alex and Mark together, and Grassini are a bit more of an independent team in the sense that they're not fully, sort of fully works funded, and so they might have a bit more say in terms of which riders that they take. Perhaps Ducati don't, I don't, wouldn't say they don't care, but they might not have ultimate veto on that. So from a marketing point of view, it might help Grassini in terms of attracting sponsorship and stuff. So you can see why that might work, but I still think he'll be at Honda again next year. Although we're going to talk about the test briefly at the end. The signs from yesterday are not great, but we'll get to that. Yep. Thank you. Is that all the news, Rich? I think Everything so. From yep. the news? Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, just uh, the only other thing was just, just very briefly, World Superbike, Johnny Ray is now confirmed at Yamaha. I don't think we mentioned that last year. I think we were speculating that that was likely to happen uh, or seemed to be likely to happen. So that is now official. So, yeah, that's a biggie as well because that's somebody that's broken their contract to go. Yeah, so there's a precedent. It does happen. It does happen. If the incentive is big enough, it will happen. Yeah, well. All right, let's look at what happened in the racing at Mizano. So, uh, Moto3, first qualifying, we found we find Holgardo there again. So, again, the guy's got to come through. But he was joined there by Kelso. So, a couple of people that were like, you know, Kelso was on the front row, middle front row, had a great qualifying. He's now back in Q1. But Holgardo gets out of that Q1. Um, in the Q2 session, Masia on the Honda would take pole. Sasaki and Toba finish out the front row. Then Morera, Anchu, and Alonso all make up the second row. Holgardo would qualify eighth, just to give you a point of reference from his troubles that he he had. Now, this Moto3 race starts out with Sasaki and Masa. They seem to take off with each other at the beginning, and they were, they you know, uh, Masa then quickly heads to the lead. Anchu kind of goes backwards because there's a very poor start as that happens out. But then Masa starts to do most of the dirty work. They, they tend to ride around in a, in a group at the beginning with Masia, Anchu, and Marrera, and Sasaki there. Uh, I, I was kind of on a Horgardo watch because they he had went backwards and he was like 10th at one point. So was he going to catch up or whatever? Then Anchu kind of goes to the front and he just starts to put down the laps. And he had way more corner speed than everybody else. Seemed like he was able to carry a lot of corner speed there especially like in turn eight. So it was always a good race. It was, it was just deciding like, you know, Masi was doing most of the donkey work. Um, Anchu would be up and down. Sasaki was always like third, fourth, fifth in the group. But at some point, he knew someone was going have to have to give. You know, we started to get to the very end, you know, few laps left to go. Anchu had a track limits warning. So you're just thinking, well, okay, the kid who's been riding really well is now going to be stifled yet again from a win by track limits because he can't keep it in there, um, you know. But with seven laps to go, Anchu, Masia, Alonso, Munoz, they all have broken away. They're definitely leading the pack, and everybody else is, is going to be there. Now, Marrera, he's fading. It's well known that he has an arm pump issue, and so apparently that must have came back to haunt him again. But when we get down to it, we see Holgardo starting to go backwards still he eventually falls out of the points with like five laps to go but that last lap is an absolute i mean it's worth the wait there's 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 a lot of good racing going on but it's calm by the standards of moto three and you just knew somewhere along the way this race was going to break open and become absolutely crazy now if i get this wrong apologies you'll have to correct pitch but as they're going through the last lap Alonzo or Alonzo tries to get past Masia, but Masia sort of defends it and he's attacking Anchu. 
Now he drives in way deep and goes super wide to where Alonzo then gets past both of Anchu and both Anchu and Masia. And Alonzo would take the win, which was fascinating. Masia would be second. He recovered and kind of blocked Anchu out. Then we had Munoz, Bayer, Toba, Sasaki, Ortola, Rueda, and Fanati finishing out the top 10. When they did the interviews after the race, Alonzo's all smiles. It's his third win in four races. Mm, yeah. The kid is, you know, again, it seems as though the KTM organization seems to find these young, talented kids that just burst onto the scene and show us what they're made of. Masia had ran a great race, but what was interesting was Anshu says, I and I quote, I effed up because <laughs> he <laughs> yeah. made a mistake. You know, he went too deep. He let Mossy get there after doing all the donkey work, which is this is, you know, this is a track that doesn't have a lot of draft. It's not a true stop start circuit. So Anshu's not really at a handicap for being in the draft as being this big kid that he is, right? But it was just just such a crazy last lap. It was all just in the last few corners of that last lap. It's well worth the watch to see it, but good on Alonzo for winning. Again, and you know, Anchu with was just kind of really with Anchu finishing where he did. And if he Anchu really should have had the win, if he had the win, he would have vaulted himself up points. He would have been probably second. I think he would have gone to second or at least third in the points. Yeah, yeah, I think he would have been. He definitely would have been third. I think he almost would have got got Sasaki. But it's just wild how that one finished out. Was there anything in there that you wanted to say about it, Rich? Well, yeah, only the on that last lap going down that long back straight through those two fast right hand sweepers let's call them or kinks onchu was actually quite handily ahead at that point and then as you say jimmy just overcooked it a bit really just went wide that kind of opened a smidgen of a door for masia who almost i mean he had from the overhead drone or helicopter shot whatever it was masia had the mother and father of all front end tucks and he saved it but that wobble sent him wide and as you say alonso just said thank you and through he went you know, just stole it from both of them, really. I mean, a well-deserved win, it's true. But what got me over the whole weekend, and particularly on the Sunday, not in MotoGP because of the downforce, I suppose, but certainly in Moto2 and definitely in Moto3, incredible amounts of chatter that a lot of the bikes yes. are suffering. Lots of people having front-end crashes because of the chatter issue. I don't know if that's a, an issue with the tarmac or the blacktop, as you like to call it, or the asphalt. You know, it could do with a resurface. I don't know. I can't imagine they have terribly cold, bitter winters there, you know, in terms of affecting the surface. But Or maybe it's just heavily used and it gets worn out. But certainly chatter was a feature um, throughout the weekend. And just focusing on Moto3, last thing to say, a really good demonstration of the differences, again, between the KTMs and the Hondas. You know, the Honda's very good still on the fast bits, but the KTM's just so much better on the brakes and going into the turns. So it really, maybe the characteristics of Mazzano, I don't know, but it really kind of, for me, highlighted where certain bikes, more than riders even, were particularly strong. But yeah, hands down, the best race of the day by a country mile, as is often oh, yeah. with Moto3, but certainly at a track like Mazzano, which I'm a bit on the fence when it comes to Mazzano's place on the calendar. It doesn't tend to create memorable races but that one was an exception that's three great moto three races on the trot <laughs> yeah well moto three rarely disappoints does it now? no it really does not yeah yeah there's so much talent and it's so close with competitive bikes that it's the rider really making a difference yeah and alonso it's fun to watch is now a championship contender if you're going to go through the points yes we're going to head through the point 
somehow magically Helgardo actually still maintained having not scored a point. He did not score one point. He still leads on 161 points. Sasaki is now close to within four, so he's on 157. Masia stays in third at 149 with 12. Anchu is the big loser in this because Anchu would have been only seven points. If he did one, he would have only been seven points behind Helgardo and would He's still in this championship, but would have been so much closer to being in this championship. And then you have Alonzo, who is 21 points behind in fifth. He is now a championship contender. I think that one's pretty obvious. And sixth is Ortola, who had a couple of race wins. But he's 29 out, which there's he needs to do something here quickly. And what I think is exciting is we're going to India to where MotoGP has never gone. So this becomes a real wild card track with a real wild card possibility. Yeah, exciting. Just flipping this around. Yeah, it's going to be exciting just from that standpoint. So that is how the championship is looking at this point. I do think it's just the top five who have a chance. Now, if Alonso, who won't necessarily be at a disadvantage as far as track knowledge, because he's a rookie and everybody's going to be a rookie at this track, he seems to learn things well and reads races pretty well. You can't count him out for putting another victory on this one in some sort of stunning fashion. Well, no, as you say, I mean, he's won, what was it, three of the last four races or five Three of the last four. Yeah, I mean, it's all about form, this game. Holgado being a prime example of that that going in the opposite direction. So definitely all to play for and can't wait for the next race. Yeah, it's going to be. So let us go to the next race that happened in the weekend. Let's go to uh, Moto2. So with Moto2, there wasn't a whole lot that went on in qualifying other than Arbolino is in Q1 again. And again, Arbolino seems to have lost the plot with the real Arbolino, please stand up. I'm not sure where <laughs> he actually is, but he did, he did get through into the, he did get through into the second qualifying session, which was important for that. Now this second qualifying session was basically destroyed by yellow flags and having laps that were canceled. So to start with Dixon, Never goes out until about seven and a half minutes left to go, which would have only given him like one run. And Dixon had laps that were taken away that were decent laps by the fact that he went past the yellow, a waving yellow flag because it seemed like everybody decided they wanted to crash as they uh, were going through. So even Acosta was a victim of that. He had a lap. He was fast all weekend. He had a lap going that was going to put him on pole. However, he went through a waving yellow flag, which knocked that lap out. So we were left with Vietti to claim the pole position. Acosta had enough speed to be second. Gonzalez was third. Kennett was fourth. Pacini, you can never bet against Pacini, even though it's not like on a, what, a six-year-old bike or six-year-old chassis or something like that. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, you know, he just got track knowledge, right? And then Lopez figured out that. A shout-out to Roberts, who actually had a great qualifying because he was seventh. And then Arbolino did come in at ninth, which he seemed to have made a turn a bit there where he got things kind of maybe figured out a little bit. So he at least was looking better. But I think Arbolino might have even had a lap that got lost to yellow flags as well at the end. I don't have that in my notes, but I'm thinking he did. So that is where that came about. Now, things were a whole different story when we got to the race, when we got to the race on Sunday. Now, Acosta took off. He had Vietti behind him. Cannon, Lopez, and Gonzalez were all there with him. Arbolino would get himself up to sixth, but Acosta was pretty much unheaded. He did not lead from start to finish. Vietti 
did, or I'm sorry, Acosta did lead from start to finish. No one could touch him. Vietti did try to make some moves at the beginning, but he kept on making small little mistakes along the way. Lowest fell off at turn one, but there's nothing good that's here. I mean, some there's good racing in the pack. The Agura, Chantra, Gonzalez battle that happens towards the end of the race it is a good race, good race in there. But Arbolino did start to climb his way back up through the field. So, you know, he had dropped, he was sixth. He worked his way up and like he seemed to have long race pace. At one point, I've even written, well, does he have a chance at the podium? Because Acosta was gone. Lopez was the one who was falling off. He definitely was lacking the edge grip on the Boscacora, which I guess because they're on the side of the tire for so long, it must work it harder than the Kalex does. Yeah, That's at least my theory. And so I was wondering, you know, is Arbolino going to wind up on the podium? He did not. He would wind up fourth. But Acosta wins in a runaway. He was the dominant guy all weekend, and he showed us that he why he is going somewhere in MotoGP with another great ride by him. Vietti was second, and another great ride by Vietti, which maybe that's why he gets the IO ride, because he's turned it around now, and maybe they think that they have them, they know the, you know, IO's got the magic to turn anybody. Look at what he's done with Anchi, right? I mean, he took a kid that didn't work in Tech 3, and has now got him, you know, in a championship fight, so well played there. Yeah. Uh, Aragura would be fifth, then Chantra, Gonzalez, and Roberts, and Slack the top. And Pacini got a top 10, which was interesting. But it was not the greatest of Moto2 races, Rich. Rather a boring fest. <laughs> In rather large writing on my notes, I've got dull race written oh. there. I mean, you were just sort of hoping for something a little bit exciting to transpire. Although nobody wants to see crashes going on. But, I mean, the only couple of things of other note that you haven't mentioned, Jim, was that I don't think you mentioned that Kanet crashed. Just one yeah, of those that's right. really did, yeah. kind of depressingly predictable kind of connect things that happened. Two or three monster front end tucks saved kind of crashes from Vietti as well, plus a couple of other people. But Vietti was nearly down two or three times in that race and saved them. But other than that, really nothing much to talk about. I was interested, not just because he's a Brit, but Dixon ran the race. He finished, I think, in 13th or 14th, something like that, maybe 12th. I just felt that because he had a problem in qualifying two. So as you said, he didn't get out until seven minutes ago. And any crash at the end of the race, and of course, they don't have warm-up anymore. So I just think he had a problem with the bike somewhere. And he just couldn't do anything with it on the Sunday. Because he was pretty much rooted in that 12th, 13th, 14th place spot for the entirety of the race. And that's not like him. And normally, he comes forward. Certainly in the last two seasons, that's been the case. And so I just wondered if that was a, a hangover from what had been going on on the Saturday. And I just, this, this is one of the problems with the warm ups having been taken away for Moto3 and Moto2. If you've had a crash or there's a bike problem or you need to change a setting or whatever, you just don't get a chance to figure it out for 10, 15 minutes on the Sunday morning. And I think that's a great shame. And I'm sure that that must have hamstrung him to some extent. Or maybe he was just having a bad weekend because that does happen too. Didn't they take those away to accommodate? the rider parade they did. that happens i mean motor gp itself only gets a 10 minute warm-up now which is hardly yeah. anything at all really but anyway it's better than nothing i suppose yeah i mean i think that's dumb especially because i mean i just can only go back to like coda the temperature difference between the saturday when everybody qualified to the sunday which was race day and with a direction of wind change it would have been nice for everybody to get 15 minutes or so just to try something and maybe change a few things or whatever. But yeah, this is, seems for the illusion of running <laughs> at Coda, the illusion of running the riders around on a flatbed truck 
to you know, a big articulating lorry there for you guys in Europe uh, seems stupid. It's not I, a good trade just, for me. Yeah, it's not. I'd rather see bikes on track. Yeah, and as people have commented, and we've certainly mentioned before, there is also that kind of safety aspect to it, whereby if you're running a repaired bike or something that's been heavily rebuilt, you know, you really want to get a chance just to take it out for a few laps and just check everything's right from a systems check point of view and that there aren't any sort of finger trouble things with bolts and that kind of stuff going on that you carry into the race otherwise. So, yeah, I, I applaud what they're trying to do to bring the riders and the fans closer together. We've seen in the last couple of rounds with the kind of fan pit around the podium that they had at Barcelona. Now, that was a good innovation, and that's something they need to expand upon. But the rider parade itself, I mean, they go by in a matter of two or three minutes, and then they're gone for half an hour on some of these tracks. And meanwhile, you're just sat there scratching your ass, waiting for several hours for the actual racing to start. So, yeah, it's just not a good solution for me, that one. I hope they change it. Or slot the rider parade in somewhere else, perhaps, somewhere else yeah. in the weekend. But I mean, I don't see why you couldn't do it in that in the like hour lunch break that resides between sort of moto two and moto gp yeah these guys have already eaten they've already got themselves hydrated and they're ready to go i mean most of the time most of those guys are on the truck anyway we're just sitting there sucking on a water bottle anyway and it just seems silly to me they must have african elephant sized bladders these guys because they just do nothing but drink water i mean i'd be on the toilet every 20 minutes if i was drinking the amount of water they drink i don't know about you jim when when I was racing, I drank a lot. I mean, I I did the same thing. Yeah, but I'm I'm not talking about beer. I'm talking about water. No, I was talking about Gatorades and water and stuff like that. You just simply consume that hydration. You sweat it out almost. It seems like you just if it's you know most of the time we were racing, it was I remember one race we was 103 degrees and we were racing inside of a typical banked oval track in the u.s and there was no breeze it was just scorching hot and you just it was terrible it's like you were done and even then it's like you know you suck down another two or three bottles of water and it still wouldn't go to the bathroom it's like yeah. everything inside of me was gone so you do always see them flooding off don't you to literally flooding off probably uh between the sighting yeah. lap and the you know the actual warm-up and race getting going they, they always go off for a comfort break so i suppose there is a certain amount of uh, expulsion of fluids going on yeah if you don't have to pee right now, you're not drinking enough, is what they usually tell you. <laughs> right, there we go. In a way to stay hydrated. So let's look at the uh, points now for Moto2. Acosta leads on 211. He's now 34 points clear of Arbolino. I think Acosta, we can safely say he's got at least a couple of fingers on the World Championship trophy right now. It's not sealed up and he's not gone, but it's definitely, uh, he's the man in charge of it right now. Arbolino is still second. Dixon is third, and now he's 65 points behind Acosta. you got to think Jake is not really a championship contender at this point. Kennett is fourth. Alonzo fifth. Vietti, with his win, had vaulted himself up to sixth. And his second place uh, gave him uh, a jump up as well. And just around at the top ten, uh, Salach, Chantra, Outiger, and Gonzalez. So... With that, I think we should look at towards MotoGP and what happened over the weekend there. Again, there's not much to re- – the only thing to kind of report out of the Q1 was that they had Takahashi on a, an LCR Honda replacing Renz, and he was not even – he did not get within the 105% rule from practice, so he was not allowed to take part in the qualifying sessions. Miller and Aleish Asperger were in Q1, which is kind of cements – the problem that Miller is having and Aleish having one is now 
back to Q1. Such is this the change of conditions, the heat or something that the Aprilias were not working through. But that's how, how it goes. I mean, all the Aprilias were there because even, even Oliveira was there. But um, Oliveira and Aspargaro do go through and would get to the get to Q2. From that point, it was basically, the question was, it was going to be which Ducati. It was either going to be either Martin or it was going to be Bezeki, you know, or maybe Benyaya. You had some inkling what was going to happen. I think Benyaya set like a wicked fast uh, lap that was like a track record. Bezeki, I think, came by and broke that record. And then Martin just, I mean, he just threw down a lap that was a lap of the gods. I mean, I yeah. have no idea where he, I think he wound up with breaking the record with a 130.3, which is like three tenths faster than Bezeki or something like that. Three, four tenths well, faster. I think it was closer to half a second faster, wasn't it? Was it, it half it a was, second faster? It was. I can't remember not. if it was in practice a half a second or if it was in the qualifying it was a half a second. So yeah, it was just one of those laps. It was just ridiculously fast by Martin. And you're like, well, I didn't really see that going on. But Martin Bezeki Benyai on the front row, Vinales Pedrosa, yes, Danny Pedrosa, who was wild carding for KTM, uh, was there in fifth. And Aleish did do well to kind of pull himself together, chips her down, put my head down, and come in and throw down a great lap, which he did do to get sixth. Now, I think they talked about the fact that Pedrosa had been working on a carbon fiber chassis KTM. Now, whether he rode that or not, I don't know, because his chassis was painted orange just like the other steel frame chassis are but you can paint carbon fiber as well so it was interesting i do believe he was writing a carbon fiber or there's pieces of it that are carbon fiber so apparently they're looking for something and they think that going down the carbon fiber road is going to help them now ducati went down that way for a long time till rossi showed up and rossi forced them to make an aluminum frame and to my knowledge they've stayed with an aluminum frame they haven't tried going back to carbon fiber. So it's going to be interesting to see what KTM does with it. Again, we don't know all the details. Is it all carbon fiber? Is it simply carbon fiber pieces somewhere that they're using to change the rigidity of the steel? You know, is it just cross members? We don't know. But it was interesting. To, it was just interesting that there was just so much chatter about that after qualifying and which bike Progresso was on. With that, we'll move to the sprint race. And, you know, I, I like... MotoGP, I like the sprint races, but this was a snooze fest. Jorge <laughs> Martin basically was out front and gone by. You're never going to see him. He wasn't in the same zip code. The walking wounded of Bezeki and Benyai, who they're warriors. There's no other way to describe it, would finish second and third, and Pedrosa would be fourth. Now, Bender did give us some excitement during this sprint race as he did not start well at all, was very far back, and he rode his way up to just behind his teammate for the weekend, Pedrosa. Then Vinales would be sixth. There was really nothing to say other than, you know, Alex's brother, Pips, Alex Pips's brother, Mark, for the final point in there. And, you know, Marquez did have some very different shaped wings on the front of that uh, Repsol Honda, but it's nothing was working there as well. I mean, that he stayed on the bike, he's gathered some data, but there's really nothing in this sprint race. It was an absolute i hate to say it it was a snoozer i mean obviously not helped by the fact that bezeki and banyaya were really still quite injured carrying i think bezeki had a bad wrist as a result of the first turn crash and obviously we know about banyaya i mean could hardly walk really in the early part of the weekend and i don't suppose it got much easier as the weekend went on i mean the only sort of surprising thing but not in a good way was just the fact that how badly the aprilia's struggled in the sprint 
race or the sprint, as I suppose we're supposed to say. Vinales was the first one home, but like you say, Jim, sort of going from Barcelona where they were pretty dominant, really, and then all of a sudden, I don't think Mazzano is a particularly favourite track of the riders or the bike. It's true as compared with Barcelona, but yeah, it was. Well, we don't have to spend too much talking about it, doing too much time, because there isn't really much to talk about in the sprint. No. Maybe aerodynamics perhaps plays a part in this. I know, you know, there's a lot of talk going on around the tyre pressures thing, spoiling the racing and so on. So I'm sniffing a bit because my cold, but because Pedroza ran into a penalty or a warning of a penalty, didn't he? Either at the end of the sprint or possibly the end of the main race on the Sunday. So that's starting to create a few issues with the tyres just being overcome with the loading that they're being subjected to because of the front end downforce. And that's not going to change anytime soon because this Michelin front tire is still not due until 2025 probably at the earliest yep don't know what's going to happen there so i think we could move to the moto gp race how about that rich yeah again it's not going to take a huge amount of time to get through this <laughs> no i will say this at the beginning of it i thought that vinaya's yellow ducati was pretty sweet i liked it it was cool i loved the yellow it was very very well done i did like that yeah no it did look nice the other ducatis that i actually really loved were the Grassinis in the white. Those looked absolutely stunning in white. I wish they would run that the whole time because I thought the white ones were fantastic. And a sea of red and orange, the white was just night and day different, and it was just beautiful. I love yeah, it. Yeah, uh, I know. It's clever how they design the graphics and stuff because they do look properly retro, don't they? Which is obviously, They do. That's the appeal to people of a certain vintage, I suppose, in part. I mean, I like the Grassini, that sort of bluey grey colour that they normally run. I, that is a nice looking bike to my eye. That's yep. obviously in the eye of the beholder. But but yeah, the, the Fausto Grassini tribute thing that they seem to roll that out for the Mizano round. They do. Yeah, it was damn good. Yeah, I agree with you. I do like the bluish colour that's on the Grassini bikes. I do like that colour too. I do find it pleasing to my eye as well. But that white was. Yeah. Yeah, but see, then again, but then it also reminds me of I remember when Honda built a VFR and they came out with an all white one, like I want to say like an eighty four, eighty five, yeah. and I so I kind of go instantly back to that retro point with that bike for Grassini. So yeah, that was the original seven fifty VFR, wasn't it? I believe it was. Which we are now showing our age, so we shall shut up <laughs> and and move on. So the race on Sunday is. If you thought it was a snoozer for 13 laps, it was a horribly <laughs> boring 27 laps as Jorge Martin, again, disappears off into the sunset. And again, you have Bezeki and Benyaya, the walking wounded, trying to keep him in sight. They did, for a certain extent, they were definitely, again, they were warriors about it all. But Miller and uh, Miller had a crash. Him and Piro had a crash. They had a very, they came together at four and five. They said that was going to be looked at after the races. Bender had a crash at turn 14 with a low side, and that put him out, obviously. So we already had two KTMs gone, and the only factory KTM was Pedrosa's there. And there. Martin, like I said, he's just gone. I mean, Marquez, Mark Marquez actually had a point where he was actually in sixth place. Now, there's some attrition that actually gets him there as well, but he seemed to be having a better race. I don't think Honda has found anything or has given him anything beyond that's going to make it better for him for the rest of the year. But if they're trending towards the right direction, or maybe they just didn't suffer as much from the heat and the tire grip that's there, 
the only real big uh, thing was a pole. He had to crash again at turn five. Uh, again, just like I said, pole sends the crash a lot, and here he crashed yet again. Though I, I was scared there at the end. There is a blip. Martin does get a track limits warning, and you're like, whoa, dude, you get that with 10 laps left to go, and you're going to have to ride inch perfect. You know, I was like, I was I was waiting for the, for the Martin long lap of inconvenience penalty to come out. It did not, and I will give it to the Stewarts. I think they raced races this weekend and the stewards didn't do anything to cause us anything to complain about or be argumentative about it was a well-run race over the weekend so i will say that and leave it there yeah but really i have i have really nothing for this other than you know at the end things do move around a little bit marquez fades off from his sixth to seventh um pedrosa let's go back through it martin bezeki benyaya pedrosa Vinales and Oliveira. Vinales always seems to do good here at Mazano. Always has. Just maybe he disagrees with this track. Oliveira, Marquez, Fernandez, Marini, and Zarco. Um, I really hate to be the Debbie Downer of this podcast, but that was a, another snooze fest race. Uh, and uh, yeah, this one hurt. Yeah, I mean, in the sprint and in the main race, there was this possibility of a Pedroza podium, wasn't there? But I don't know about mm. you, Jim, but. I mean, Danny's not the kind of guy at his sort of stage in life where he wants to go putting rash moves in a championship that he's not involved in at all. He never really got the feeling he was going to get close enough. Again, with modern MotoGP, the effect of running that close to the Ducati, of all things, which is, you know, one of the more aerodynamically spectacular things out there. So I didn't really think there was, unless he was going to launch one, but that's never been the Danny Pedroza way, really. And it would have been nice to see him on the podium, but didn't really ever think it was going to happen. The one thing that I think was a highlight all weekend, in actual fact, and we'll come to him in the test in a minute, was person I don't have a tremendous amount of love and sympathy for, but credit where credit is due, Raul Fernandez on the other RNF Aprilia suddenly started to look like the rider we've been expecting to turn up for the last year and a half. Where yeah. did he finish? I think he finished ninth or tenth or something like that. Uh, he finished eighth. Oh, eighth. So that is hands down his best performance. Hands down. Mm-hmm. But that was not a fluke. I mean, all over the weekend, he was quick. And in fact, he was shading Oliveira through, because Oliveira was in Q1, if, as you said earlier, Jim, while mm-hmm. Fernandez went straight through to Q2. So let's yeah, see if I forgot that, to that continues as a trend, because he's really been... I mean, obviously, he had a catastrophic year at KTM Tech 3 last year. We know that. So did Remy Gardner. And we know what happened there. Everybody was expecting him just to gel with the Aprilia straight away. And it has taken some time. But maybe this is the first sort of green shoot of progress. Wish the guy well. Not been a big fan of some of the antics of him and his entourage in the past that we've read and heard about. But anyway, perhaps he's grown up a little bit. And if he's starting to enjoy riding that bike, then it's another person in the mix, isn't it? Rather than somebody languishing around at the back that we wouldn't really normally see so that was really the only other point of note really i mean i just i understand why they did it it was a safety thing given the speed of that back straight but Mazzano's never recovered from being run the opposite direction to how it was originally conceived it's true i forget very which true. year they changed it it was probably around about mid Ooh. to late 90s maybe the very early noughties they sort of went from what would it have been clockwise to anti-clock i can't think now but those what are the very fast sweepers on the back straight now where you've got lots of runoff? If you go the other direction, the wall is quite close. So that's why they switched it around because the super bikes back in those days were going through there, even in the late 90s, were going through pretty damn quick. And if you had a crash, you were going to arrive at the wall disturbingly fast. So that's why they changed it. But it's never really delivered, for my money anyway, great racing after they changed that, which is a shame. It's always going to be, to me, the place that Rainey broke his back and paralyzed himself yes yeah just for me these things just come back each time that we go there now granted 
Rainey's was in the was when it was going anti-clockwise. Now it runs clockwise, but still, it's never really been much of an anything kind of a circuit. It's kind of like Imola. You know, Imola is not that great of a circuit for cars. For bikes, I think it's a good circuit. Yeah, there have been some good bike races around Imola. And obviously, World Supers still go there. Yep. And it's up and down. You've got elevation at Imola. You've got mm-hmm. the, the park and the trees and so on. So at least there's some other stuff to captivate you. But Mazzano, I mean, okay, if you get the helicopter shots over to the Adriatic coast or whatever it is, yeah, that looks pretty fine to me. But the track itself is a bit bland, I think. Yeah, it just is. And... uh it hasn't really produced any stellar racing. You know, Moto3 is Moto3, so you're going to get a good race there. But the rest of it is usually a processional, no-passing type of thing with a few sprinkle of low sides and front-end washes that happen because of being on the left side of the tire, or sorry, being on the right side of the tire for those three fast rights. And then there's a couple of slower rights that finish it off. So I think it's, what, six rights in a row or something? So the tire's taking a lot of punishment and you're asking a lot of it at the end of it. So you always get the live side there. But I mean, hopefully not being offensive or putting any noses out of joint in the beautiful country of Italy. One, literally one of my favouritest places ever. And let's remember, Mugello is certainly top three track in the world on any day of the oh, week. Yeah. Any day of the week. So, uh, I mean, Italy is motorsport in Italy. are just kind of bedfellows uh, that have always existed, aren't they? But yeah, Mizano always leaves me a little bit cold. Anyway, yeah, that was that was the race. Well, let's look at the point standings after that so we can get to the testing that happened afterwards. Benyaya still leads the championship, obviously. He's on 283 points. Martin is now 36 points behind him, uh, even after doing the double. So it's going to be tough for Martin to get past Benyaya in this championship. Benyaya is obviously capable of riding, riding at the front and finishing second or third, at least maintaining a podium position, which is going to keep him leading this championship. And... Granted, we've got we that this is race twelve, which leaves us with eight races left. There's still plenty of points, and anything can happen. But Benyaya's at least got one ham firmly planted on the trophy, if not one in a couple of fingers on the other hand. Yeah, uh, Martin is some twenty nine points ahead of Bezeki, who's on two hundred eighteen. Then you have Bender, who's fallen off, and he's like one hundred ten behind Benyaya. So something you know. The KTM is still not good enough yet, although it's close. And Aspargaro is in fifth and Zarco sixth. So there's really nothing in it there that's going to really change in the points here drastically anywhere despite the injuries to Bezeki and Benyaya. What we can say with total confidence, Jim, is that a Ducati rider will be lifting a championship this year. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Not that we had any doubt about that anyway, but there we go. Right. So that wraps up the racing portion from Mazzano, and that allows us to then move on to the testing that happened afterwards. So one of the things that happens is Marquez goes out and tests a Honda. So that implies that Mark is going to stay at Honda because if you're Honda and you know Mark's leaving, would you let him ride your 2024 prototype bike? I don't think you would, but conversely, you are in such sad shape. Would you want and would you value the opinion of the was six times MotoGP champion? Would you want that? Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. Honda goes its own. Honda goes its own way. So there's that. It seems as though, from what I saw of the press conference video afterwards, that Mark says that basically we still have the same problems. We haven't adjusted anything. Haven't changed anything drastically enough. Although. Brattle's bike had 
a long exhaust on it, it, a la KTM. He also had little winglets on the swing arm, I think, as well, sort of a la Aprilia. But we've said this before, and not to belabor the point, all of that must work in conjunction with the motorcycle. You just can't bolt pieces onto it and figure out that it's going to be super, so much faster than it was before. Is there anything else you want to say about the Honda thing before we go to Yamaha and Quattraro? Well, paraphrasing Mark Marquez, he said words to the effect of, if this is what we have, then we're very far away. Something like that. And I'm just looking at the top 10. I mean, testing, okay, you always have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. It's true, but no sign of Mark Marquez in the top 10. So I can't believe anybody's sandbagging at this point of view. I mean, we know that Mark has not exactly been, since Saxon Ring, that sort of fateful weekend, he hasn't exactly been pushing it to the absolute limit. Although he's had, you know, a couple of good rounds comparative to the other Honda riders, which is a horror story, really, for everybody else. So it's hard to know what to say, Jim, really, isn't it? I mean, Honda have got quite a long way in front of them to climb out of this problem that they're in. I don't think they're going to leave the sport or anything kind of melodramatic like that. But, I mean, Pooch said that Mark Mark has, has not said anything to him about what his plans are or that he's leaving or anything like that. So I suppose from Honda's point of view, they're just going to assume that he stays put. He has got a contract and a costly one to get out of. But the, the testing itself really doesn't tell us very much, does it? Because he says the bike isn't really any different to what he's already been complaining about with what he's got. So that doesn't sound terribly hopeful to me. No, it does not. But I wouldn't put it past Honda to build something completely different and potentially get the sums right. But there's also, they're just too slow to adapt to. They missed the boat with aerodynamics. They really did. It's just, they missed. It was a miss. And I don't think they have enough aerodynamic research. And I think they're looking for a solution to their rear grip problems and things of that nature in aerodynamics. And I just don't see that. Have as, as the way you're going to get it. I still think you need a car that fundamental or car, sorry, you need to have a motorcycle that has fundamentally good grip and feel, and then you can enhance that grip and feel. I don't think you can make more grip than what you have, right? Um, I could be wrong, but that's how I see it. Only with aerodynamics, and if you're behind the curve on that, then you know you're going to not have as much load as everybody else has got, and so that's still a problem. Hence, he's not in the top ten. Yeah. So if we follow this aerodynamic theme forward, we talked to Quattraro and Quattraro is basically like, there's not enough horsepower in this thing, which if you more aero you bolt on, the more horsepower you have to have to pull that through the air. Now, can the inline four have more horsepower? Yes, but it's going to take something clever to get it. And we saw, uh, I cannot think of his name. Do you, uh, he was he was a Formula One guy. Yeah, I'm just trying to look it up because I saw a tweet about this earlier on. Uh, so keep talking and I'll see if I can find it. He was uh, in the garage with Yamaha. He's supposedly consulting uh, on their engine. And he's known to have done work with Aprilia for their engine. So he got them the horsepower that they have now. So it's possible. You know, one of the things is maybe they are going to go down the path of variable valve timing a la Suzuki's in line four, which is entirely possible that they put that in there. There's other little tricks that you could do. I, you know, there's, um, you could, in theory, take the two middle connecting rods and put them to share one journal 
and do that and you could get a little bit more rev out of it get some there that's a probably going to be more vibration than what it's worth i don't know i'd have to think about that one a little harder but there's going to have to be something clever for them to get there to get anything for quattro and i mean quattro puts on a brave face at the races but in qualifying he doesn't really go anywhere and his sprint races are horrible and he does seem to do a little better on race day but wow it's just again Here's another guy with immense amount of talent. Uh, you know, I rate him highly. And he's on a bike that's just absolutely not competitive whatsoever. And you got to wonder, what would he do on a Pramac Ducati, right? Yeah. Again, a guy that probably can't get himself out of his current contract quick enough, I would imagine. Although, you know, you got Rins is going there next year. And the conundrum really in all of this, uh, by the way, Luca Marmarini is the name of the engine. Thank you guru uh, he's an ex ferrari formula one guy and then came across as you said and did some work for i don't know if he's still involved with ferrari that, that i have no idea but has obviously done consulting work at the very least for aprilia and now is helping yeah i mean you say the real conundrum with the inline four is suzuki because that mm-hmm. bike works that bike was powerful it had good aero uh, great balance and all the things that they always used to say about suzuki's all down the years it was just the complete package Maybe not the very, very best bike on the grid, but very, very close to being that. And so it, it does prove that there is life in the inline four. And as you say, it might well be that the new engine that is in the Yamaha is pushing out a good few more horsepower. But if you've got more aero, you need more power to push it down the straight. So, yes, yeah, I mean, it's just a never ending trudge of trying to improve all the time. I mean, what is it necessary must go faster, as the Japanese used to say. Yeah, something to that effect, I think. But it looked, again, a bit like the Honda situation. It looks like a bit of a long rest of this year and probably most of next for you know the Yamaha riders. But it'll be interesting to see what Rins can do on the bike because they haven't really had, for whatever reason, and I'm not criticising over, overly, but they haven't really had a functioning second rider on the Yamaha. So it's all on Quattararo, really, isn't it? It's been like that for quite a while. I mean, hopefully Frankie lands at Ducati somewhere, as we think he will. And maybe the rider that we used to see will re-emerge all of a sudden. But we'll have to wait and see on that one. But they need two riders, you know, top riders, which is what they're going to have next year, um, to help try and push that development further. You know, that's the hope, I think, at Honda, too, is they have Zarco going to take the LCR seat. We know that he's DG Delinia's preferred tester of new parts and bits and pieces. He also has been riding a Ducati for several years, so he kind of knows what it should feel like. Now, the question is, I don't think Zarco leaves willingly unless there was a big payday and some assurances that Honda is going to listen to him. Because I don't think his contract is specifically with LCR. No, it's it's HRC. 100% positive it's an HRC contract. It is, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised, Jim. I mean, a penny for 10 minutes in Joanne Mir's head at the moment because uh, that, Mm. again, is a person that is having an utterly torrid year. I mean, he cannot have foreseen that things were going to be like this. And his run of form this year, and the number of crashes that he's had is enough to drive somebody out of the sport, I would think, just from a self-preservation point of view both mentally and physically so the jury's out on Mir and you know you know I wouldn't be terribly surprised he's going on an HRC bike next year and I think that's where the flexibility in the HRC contract is from it's very possible yeah is there anything else from the Mazzano test that we want to talk about uh, I've just got the top 10 in front of me so I'll very quickly okay. shoot through it. I won't bother with times and stuff the times look sort of similar-ish to what people were doing over the race weekend so in first place as always king of testing Luca Marini then we had Maverick Vinales on the Aprilia, then Brad Binder, Jorge Martin, 
Jack Miller pops up in fifth place, interestingly. Quattraro in sixth. Now, he was half a second or 0.575 off the fastest time set by Marini. So maybe not so disastrous. Miguel Oliveira in seventh. Morbidelli. <laughs> Again, that's the guy that you don't really talk about very much. Morbidelli in eighth, then Alex Marquez and Raul Fernandez once again rounding out the top ten on the RNF Aprilia. So a bit of a mixed bag, very close, changeable as we tend to see in MotoGP these days. So more than I don't know, we'll perhaps get to read a few more things over the coming few days and talk about it a bit more next time out. Okay, so let's change gears here and move to testing of Pirelli tires at Catalonia for Moto Two and Moto Three question was were the tires going to be better faster what was going to happen it appears as though from what i was able to read at least uh, they talked to rory skinner on moto 2 and he said that the tires are faster the pirellis provide a lot of feel on the front and they're able to get there now this is a bit of a conundrum because the pirellis you know if you were to take a dunlap tire and you were to sit on it it would hold up to it to that shape uh, it would maintain its roundness right yeah if you try that with a Pirelli, it's going to squish itself into a pretzel, which is interesting. There is a very, very good article by Matt Oxley at Motorsports Magazine that is the Danilo Petrucci blog, basically. And in the last episode of this blog, if you will, Petrucci talks about racing on Michelin's Dunlops in Moto America. So, so Michelin's in MotoGP, Dunlop's in Moto America, and now Pirelli's in World Superbike. And his explanation of the differences between tires is, I, I will do it no justice to try to do it here, and I won't. You need to go read that because it is fascinating. In, in depth from a rider's point of what those tires feel like, the differences and all of that in between is really fascinating read. It's safe to say that it's going to be very interesting because we know that Pirelli signed a deal to provide tires to Moto3 and Moto2 until the end of 2026. Michelin has a contract for tires for MotoGP to the end of 2026. Does anyone want to make a guess that Pirelli is going to bid tender and may potentially take Michelin out of MotoGP? And MotoGP will be a Pirelli based theories just like world superbikes is it's potential stranger things have happened yeah stranger things have happened and one of the things that Petrucci talks about is how well you can break on the pirelli front and how you can only really crash it if you lock the front up which i thought was very weird considering the bridgestone was an uncrashable front tire that it seems as though the Pirelli is too, but I guess there's a point of you have to develop that trust in the tire because the the slicks for the Moto2 bikes are based on World Superbike slicks. The Moto3 rear tire, I believe I have this right. It's, this is from memory. The rear is based off of a Super Sport tire, and then the front is an all-new tire for the Moto3 bikes. Right, okay. So there's that. Pretty skinny. Yeah. They're, yeah, they are kind of skinny. So that's going to be interesting. And the other thing that's really fascinating is that sort of Michelin, this is all from what Petrucci said, because I'm kind of summing up some of the high points, I guess, out of what Petrucci's talked about, is that the Pirellis are all a production tire. So they work in a much wider range of temperatures where the Michelins, they want to build you the best tire that's possible. So they build sort of a bespoke tire that's supposed to work at this track and we're hoping 
but the forecasted temperatures for those days are going to be those temperatures. And the Dunlops are kind of in that same boat. They're sort of a very hard slick and, and the construction is so, so stiff on those. And I, I thought for sure the KLXs would have had trouble with that, but apparently not. The soft, squishy Pirellis seem to be fantastic on it. I mean, no one seems that it's going to be such a big deal, but please go read the article with Petrucci. It's a very fascinating read. Mm. So we'll leave it there on that. I think we are done, Rich, unless you have anything else in your bag of tricks. Just one thing to say, and it's a long-term hold that thought, but and I'm assuming that he will be in Moto2 next year, but Rory Skinner will be interesting because he's having a pretty tough first year, full year in Moto2. I think it's fair to say you rarely see him running inside the top 20. But with the Pirellis coming in, and being that they are based on superbike tyres, Rory Skinner ran on Pirellis in, in British superbike for two or three years. So it'll be just... I'm curious to know... I mean, some riders will make the switch very easily. Some guys might find it a real struggle to get their head around that, as you say, Jim, that very, very different construction and feel that that will create. Anybody that's coming from fairly recent knowledge of that kind of attire might have a bit of an advantage. So it would be interesting to see how Skinner gets on next year on the assumption that he remains in Moto2 with the American racing team or a another. So, yeah, that'll be one just to keep in the back of the mind. Although I tend to forget what I had for dinner last night. So me remembering that by next March is probably not likely. But we'll obviously be talking about tyres a bit in the early rounds of next year with regards to oh, yeah. Moto3 and Moto2 because it is a huge change. So, But I shall go off and find that Matt Oxley article and have a have a read. You know, uh, if you don't think tyres are not important, think about Simon Crafar. He was racing in the 500s. He had a victory at Donington Park. He was on the podium. He was chasing Mick Dewan. And then the team changed from the Dunlaps to the Michelins and Simon Crafar's ride. They wound up, I think, parting like halfway through the season, Mm, if I remember correctly. And then that sent him to World Supers. Did Simon go to World Superbike? I think he did. He went, I think it became, I think it became the beginning of the end of Simon's motorcycle career. Just on tires. He came to GP500 from World Superbikes and was that rarest of rare things in the 90s of a person that came across from that paddock and actually did very well. And as you say, not least of which is that he won a race, which not many yeah. people can have that claim on a GP500 bike. So what he did after departing, I, yeah, I can't remember. I think he he popped up in BSB for yeah, he did, half yes. a season. I spoke to him about it when I interviewed him last summer. Golly, that seems <laughs> that's a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, which he bitterly regretted ever doing, making that move. But yeah, as you say, a change of tyre can have all the difference in the world, can't it? Yep. Some people, I think we're going to see, some people are going to thrive, some people will struggle, and it's going to be interesting to see who's who. Yeah. Uh, so with that, if you want to get in contact with us and drop us a line, you can do that at by emailing motopod at motopodcast.com. If you want to get a hold of Richard or myself um, via social media channels, we are, I am, at MotoRGV, Instagram, X, formerly Twitter, and Threads on Instagram as well. Rich is at Richard Jowett. That's two Ts at the end on all the same platforms as well, I think, right, Rich? Yeah, pretty sure Threads and... is the same. I've forgotten. Like everybody, <laughs> I signed up on day one and two, and then uh, haven't looked at it since. Yeah, it's pretty much me too. So with that, guys, I'm going to remind you all to ride safe. See you next time.